So, I have some questions for you about the nativities. Where does the genealogy go back to? Well, in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus goes back to Abraham. But in Luke, the genealogy of Jesus goes back to Adam. Who announces the birth? Well, in Matthew, an angel visits Joseph. But in Luke, an angel visits Mary. Who visits? Wise men or shepherds? Wise men go to a house in Matthew, and shepherds go to the manger in Luke. How many wise men are there? We don't know. There are three gifts, but we don't know how many wise men there are. Where was Jesus born? In Matthew, he was born in Bethlehem, and in Luke, he was born in Nazareth. Isn't this awesome? Right? And why does the family travel? Well, in Matthew, the family travels from Bethlehem to Egypt and back up to Nazareth because Herod wants to kill Jesus. But in Luke, Augustus calls for a census and they go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And what scripture is fulfilled? Well, in Matthew, out of Egypt I have called my son, and he shall be called Nazarene. And in Luke, the scripture that is fulfilled is that he is descended from King David. Luke is the only scripture that has Mary visiting Elizabeth. So what we do with our nativity scene is that we squish them all together, and we are unabashedly going to do this on the 18th. We're going to have wise kids. <laughs> We're going to have shepherd girls and boys. We're going to have a star. We're going to have the whole dealy bob. We're going to have a manger. We don't have a house. But we squish it all together. Um, which is fine, but just know that there are two different stories in two different Gospels because each Gospel writer is trying to say something different about Jesus. It doesn't mean that one of them is right and one of them is wrong. It just means that two different Gospel writers have two different ideas about what it means to follow Jesus, which is okay. It truly is. Okay. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. So this section of text um, immediately precedes what we just read. The, the section about it is talking about a, a boy king who is going to be born. And they see a star, and they're going to go try to find him. Now, so the author of Matthew writes that the idea of someone looking for a new king frightened Herod. And he called together all of his chief priests and his scribes, and he asked these astrologers, these wise men, uh, what was going on. And well, you see, they said, the prophet said that there would be a king, a new ruler, a new shepherd of the people born in Bethlehem. So Herod, who is not a nice guy, in spite of what we may read later about him washing his hands, Herod was a jerk. He really was. He was uh, manipulative and he was diabolical. And so he secretly calls for the wise men to find out what they heard about this star. And they tell him, you know, he, he tells the wise men, I would really like to pay my respects to this child. I think that would be the nice thing for me to do. So go to Bethlehem 
And when you find this child who is going to be the king, bring him to me so I can pay my respects to him. So they set out. They follow in a star. And the gospel writer tells us that they enter a house, they kneel down, and they offer their gifts of frank, frankincense, Frankenstein. I saw a uh, cartoon <laughs> this morning before I left, and one of the wise men has gold, and they say, who is this? And it's a picture of Frankenstein. Anyway, um, so they offer frankincense and myrrh and gold, um, but no idea about how many wise men there were. So then they have this dream, right? They have this dream, and they're, they're warned, don't go back to Herod. So instead of going back the way they came, they leave on a different road. So they come this way, they go that way. So now it's Joseph's turn to have a dream, and an angel tells him that his family needs to go to Egypt. The Gospel writer tells us this so that Scripture can be fulfilled. Now, if you're a skeptic like me sometimes... I look at this and I think, well, isn't that just pretty convenient? I mean, isn't it nice for the gospel writers to decide that Jesus is this person and then go back and justify it? It's very clever, very clever. So Herod realized that he's been tricked. And he is really, really, really mad. And he orders the killing of all the children to and under so that scripture can be fulfilled. And later, after Herod dies, Joseph has a dream that tells him to go back. But then Herod's son is now the ruler, and the son is no great guy either. Worse yet, he could be even worse than Herod. So Jesus has another dream, or Joseph has another dream to tell him to go to Nazareth, so that scripture can be fulfilled. And there's a a lot of dreaming and a lot of scripture fulfilling in this really short section of Matthew. The reason being that if somebody has a dream in scripture, it's because God's telling them to do something. It's proving some sort of God's sanction for the events. If you dream it, God's telling you to do it. Did you notice that Herod has no dreams? Joseph had dreams. The wise men have dreams. Herod has no dreams. So the writer of Matthew is doing a very specific thing with this text and with this nativity narrative. The first chapter, like I said, is all about the begats, and his lineage goes back to Abraham, because in this way, the gospel writer of Matthew is showing that Jesus is the legitimate heir to the throne, if you will, that Jesus is anointed to be the Messiah. And if the lineages weren't enough to prove who Jesus was, Matthew lists a whole bunch of fulfilled prophecies to illustrate that, yes, Jesus is the one. And that's Matthew's point. The Gospel writer's point isn't that Jesus was saved and all of these other poor children were killed. Matthew's point is that Jesus fulfills the Scripture because everything that the prophet talks about happens in the person of Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem. That's Micah 5.2. He and his family flee to Egypt. That's Hosea 1.1. Rachel reaps for her children. Jeremiah 31.15. And Jesus will be called a Nazarene. And there is no reference in the Hebrew Bible for that. Commentators note that there's no place in the First Testament that says that Jesus has to come from Nazareth. And so, 
Maybe it sounds like this story is an exact retelling of the Exodus that we get in the First Testament. There's the fleeing to Egypt. There's the killing of innocent children. The statement that the wanderers can return because those that want you dead are dead themselves. Matthew's point is that he's writing for a new Exodus. He's offering a retelling of the story to illustrate that with Jesus now there is a new freedom. There is a new freedom from bondage. And from the very outset, from the very outset, the life of Jesus is threatened. Now obviously, Herod thought that Jesus, this babe predicted by the prophets, was going to eventually overthrow the kingdom. I mean, why else have him killed? Right? Herod felt threatened. He was afraid. He was very, very angry. Now, any manner of things happen when we let fear and anger make our decisions for us. It's most likely not even fear and anger. It's more likely fear and then anger. Anger is a secondary emotion. We feel the fear because we think we might lose something we have or miss out on something we think we deserve. And because fear leaves us feeling vulnerable, we cover it up right away with anger because anger protects us. There is little more that is more toxic and more destructive and more death-dealing than fear mixed with anger. It does terrible, terrible things. Throughout history, we can see where the two most destructive emotions have completely wrecked havoc. Everything from jealousy to genocide. And it doesn't take long for us to call to our mind horrific events like the Holocaust or the genocides in Rwanda or the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo to realize that the slaughter of the innocents isn't that far removed from us. In 1994, the fighting between the Tutsis and the Hutsus resulted in the death of nearly one million people. It's estimated that a quarter of a million people were killed in ethnic cleansing operations in the Balkans in the mid-90s. And to this very day, hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing to become uh, refugees from Syria. We can look around at our own cities and our own towns and we can see pretty much the same. It seems like every day we hear of somebody who's died from gun violence. I live across the street from the man who was killed in the 500 block of 23rd Avenue. I can see his house from my driveway. There's a suicide or a homicide or a shooting, domestic violence. 10,000 people a year die due to gun violence. There have been more than 600, or there have been more than 60 mass shootings in the last 30 years. 60 mass shootings in the last 30 years. Closer to home, Coalition of Domestic Violence reports that there are more than 13,000 domestic violence incidents in Colorado. This includes kidnapping, rape, homicide. Anger and fear make human beings do the most unspeakable things. In all of these instances, as we look from the outside, it's easy to see where other people are afraid. I mean, I can look at this, oh yeah, they were so afraid, they were so afraid, but it's not easy to see in myself. When I look at the world through a lens of fear, like Herod, I see a world of scarcity. I think that what I have 
isn't enough or what I have is soon going to be taken away from me. Somebody else got something I deserved. Scarcity breeds fear. In his essay, The Myth of Scarcity, Walter Brueggemann writes that we never feel that we have enough. We have to have more and more and more, and this insatiable desire destroys us. Whether we are liberal or conservative Christians, we must confess that the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity, a belief that makes us greedy, mean, and unneighborly. Now, some people will read this story and wonder, why did God let it happen? Why did God let Herod kill all those kids? Why does God allow things like the Holocaust and Rwanda and Kosovo? Why doesn't God stop the madman with the gun who barges into a school and kills 26 little kids? Surely it cannot be God's will. Remember, God's will is shown by dreams, and Herod had no dreams. With any number of selfish, fearful motivations, people do all manner of things that are not the will of God. In a conversation I had with a seminary friend, we discussed the idea that a number of people were told about the arrival of this new king of Israel. Mary and Joseph were told about this new king. The wise men were told about this new king. Herod was told about this new king. And everybody was free to act to the news the way they wanted to react to the news. Mary and Joseph responded to the news by being faithful. The wise men responded to the news with wonder and with awe. And Herod responded with fear and threats. How are we going to respond to the good news? In her book Amazing Grace, preacher and author Kathleen Morris writes, that men looked diligently for this little boy. They were drawn by a sense of hope. In this coming year, how will we share our hope and our peace and our joy and our love? What are we going to do so that we can step out of that impulse to react out of fear and anger and to react instead with love and openness and joy? Where there is love, there is no room for exclusion. Where there is love, there is no room for judgment. Where there is love, there is no room for hatred. Love makes it impossible for us to look down upon another person, but it makes it completely possible for us to hold somebody else up. When we look through the eyes of love, it's possible for us to see that we are surrounded by abundance. And just as that star pointed the way for the Magi to the baby Jesus... The grown-up Jesus points us to God. He tells us that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our hearts and all of our mind and all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The star that points the way to God is love. Amen.